Kathak is not bound by Indian myths and legends. That is one area. It's like a spoken language. If once you learn the language, you can say whatever you want. Hello and welcome to the Tupsikari podcast. We're back in 2023 to bring you more intimate conversations with leading women in dance. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Emily May. I'm a British-born dance writer and critic, and I've been based in Berlin, Germany since 2018, named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Tupsikari and Sneakers. Tupsikari celebrates female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion. To date, guests have included Venice Biennale Silver Lion winner Una Doherty, English National Ballet Associate choreographer Stina Kwajaba, and Michael Clark company founding member Ellen Van Schulenberg. For the first episode of the newly relaunched podcast, I invited Birmingham-based dance artist Sonia Sabri to discuss her life, career, and the artists that have inspired her. Sonia is the artistic director of Sonia Sabri Company, one of the leading contemporary South Asian dance and music companies in the UK. She has an international reputation for presenting classical North Indian Kathak dance in a contemporary context without diluting its integrity. Her fresh new style of Kathak was developed by reinventing it from within, stretching its limits and generating socially and politically engaged works that are relevant to today's audiences. Sonia frequently works across dance styles and art forms and has collaborated with pioneering creatives such as Richard Austin, Shabana Jaising, Nitin Tony, John Z. D. and many more. I couldn't wait to talk to her about how she pushes the boundaries of what Kathak can be, how the reception and profile of South Asian dance styles has developed in the UK since she started her eponymous company, her current work and her ambitions for the future. Hi Sonia, thank you so much for joining us today on the Tupsikri podcast. How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? Hi, I'm really well. I'm in Birmingham currently. Just got back from uh, having some downtime and uh, yeah, back into the into the business of, of the dance world. Amazing. As I said before we started recording, I'm very happy to have another West Midlands based artist on the podcast as that's also where I'm from. So very happy to be representing the Birmingham art scene. Yeah, and so let's get started started. For my first question, I wanted to go back to the very beginning of your dance journey and ask you what some of your first memories of dance or experiences with the art form were and how you became attracted to it. A very interesting question that because as a child I was very uh, shy and quite an introvert, had very little confidence. So I think it was the magic of anything to do with theatre, the uh, idea of make-believe, being out of your usual self and presenting yourself in a different manner. I think that was also always very exciting. I never actually wanted to dance, but I did enjoy the idea of being on stage. It was really my parents who wanted me to become a film actress, quite accurately Bollywood film actress, because I think in Indian families and particularly traditional families, Bollywood films is kind of the escapism and there's a real kind of glamour or it's kind of considered as a measure of success for some you know the whole being famous and being on the red carpet and having lots of people appreciate your work so with that in mind and i must add here that my my dad also wanted to be a bollywood actor but because he comes from a very traditional family and you know dance music anything to do with theater or films was only appreciated by seeing others do it but not necessarily oneself his parents were very strict and said no no you can't do that and so he actually ran away to Mumbai, went to the film industry, 
didn't make it. Cutting a long story short, he managed to get from India to the UK. And so when he had, you know, his couple of kids, I being the first one, he said, right, I'm going to make you a Bollywood actor. And when you see Bollywood films, it's all about singing and dancing, or at least not singing, I would say miming to the songs. And dance is a big, big part of it. But, you know, Bollywood films have commercial dance in it. So not knowing uh, what kind of dance would it be called at the time. It was called, I think, film dancing. Not really knowing it's an art form not really having any idea about technique and having to train. There was just this idea of, oh, getting into some kind of acting school and hopefully she'll pick up some dancing through that. So um, I was kind of pushed into that realm and it was, I guess, serendipity that I loved moving and dancing when I did get to class. And then when you did begin to love it, how did that then progress to training specifically in dance and transitioning into focusing on that mainly rather than Bollywood? So my first experience of dancing was actually going to some commercial classes and they used to teach all the kind of the dance steps to Michael Jackson songs. And I really loved that. And there were times when I also went to tap and ballet. And at the time, I think there was something called modern dance really was kind of an amalgamation of all different types of styles. I guess my parents realised that no, this is not the kind of dancing that we've seen in the films. It needs to be a little bit more Indian or traditional. Luckily, one of my school friends, she was training in a classical dance style called Bharatanatyam, which is a South Indian dance style. She said, oh, why don't you come and join the classes that I go to? We ended up going to the art centre where these classes were happening, but we arrived there a little earlier than the scheduled time. And there was another class happening at the time, and that was Kathak, which is the North Indian classical dance style. And my dad, when he took me along, he said, oh, this looks something like Indian dancing. Let's just put you into that. And my friend wasn't there. So I was already panicking. I said, no, 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 I don't think this is the class. But anyway, I got pushed into the studio. The teacher was wonderful. And she said, just come in. And I was very young. I was probably about six or seven. And she said, just have a go. And if you think you would like to come back next week, you know, do so. But yes, seeing her move and teach and the music and being in that space, it was just something else. And that's when I knew, yes, I do want to do this type of dancing. It was all very overwhelming because there were lots of people who I obviously hadn't seen before. And my teacher had such a grand persona. It was inspiring, yet also overwhelming, yet wanting to do this. There was this kind of hunger that developed over a very short space of time. Without me knowing, I I fell in love with it. It was almost like a calling to, to Kathak. I was wondering, could you maybe explain a little bit about Katak as a style and some of its key features? We've had Katak-based uh, artists on the podcast before, but I think it would just be great to hear from you uh, for our listeners to have a bit more explanation. Sure. So the word Katak actually means the one who tells a story. So it started from the folklore tradition where artists would tell stories, but they would also enact the stories. They were almost like one-man shows. The artist would sing, they would move, they would tell the story, they would create this kind of mimed magical world. And it was a way to tell stories about the human and the morales and the the virtues. And over time, it got stylized. There was 
always an element of technical dance as well. So there was a bit of footwork. There was some appreciation on uh, geometrical patterns. But I would say the the great flourish happened during the 13th century when India uh, or the Indian subcontinent, I should say, was reigned by the Mughal Empire. And the Mughals were a great combination of the Persians and the Mongolians. And they brought their take on music and costume and architecture, literature and movement. So what we have is this beautiful, well-rounded art form of storytelling through movement, mime and gesture and a very strong rhythmical, musical element of dance where there is no story or no narrative as such, but is a great personification in its most abstract form of of life, of energy, of ecstasy. If anybody has seen something like flamenco, flamenco has its history actually from Kathak. The Kathak gypsies from Rajasthan, they travelled so far that they ended up in Andalusia. And the folk tradition of the Spanish folk dancers and the Kathak gypsies, they collaborated. What we see as flamenco today is an element of Kathak in that. So the clapping, the the spinning, the footwork is a major, major element of Kathak. Now they have started to dance in shoes, but before the 19th century, they were dancing bare feet. So I think flamenco is a very interesting backtrack to what Kathak did for, for flamenco or for native folk dance in Spain. And that energy, if they've not seen Kathak, if anyone has not seen Kathak, the energy that they get in flamenco is very similar to what you get in Kathak. But added with that is an element of storytelling. And I think that's the most lyrical, very profound, very moving part of Kathak as well. And I must add here, the music is very important. You cannot have Kathak without music. It's essential for Kathak artists to be musically trained. They must understand composition. They must understand rhythmic work, the mathematics of rhythm, as well as be able to sing, even if not in tune. <laughs> That's so interesting what you said about flamenco. I've never heard that before, but now you say it, I can really see the parallels and how they can be compared. I also just wanted to pick up, because you said about music and of the importance of music in Katak. I believe it's also very important for Katak and for you specifically to use live music all of the time. Can you maybe expand a bit on that and potentially the relationship between the dancer and the musician? Yes, so it is believed, I think part of Eastern tradition, or can I say the tradition of Indian subcontinent, is that you can't compose music without having the dance in the composer's head and you can't have dance without the music. So it's part of our Eastern philosophy, our experience of dance and music that they do go hand in hand. And Kathak is so bound by the rhythmical structures. Tabla, which is the main percussive instrument, is almost the language of Kathak. So when we are doing our technical or our rhythmic dance, percussive, I mean, I call it a percussive dance form. When we are choreographing and dancing, we really rely on the language of the tabla. It's quite profound. And as artists, we are supposed to beatbox. When we have this idea of beatboxing comes from hip-hop culture or America, actually it's part of the Indian music tradition that you must be able to mimic the sound of what you're playing on the percussive instrument, whether that's tabla or whether that's mridangam in the South Indian traditions. The artist has to be able to recite. Then that's an understanding that, yes, the artist knows exactly what the rhythmic phrase is and then they have reinterpreted it through 
through their body, through their uh, gestures or through their footwork. That is the spine of Kathak, is the, the rhythm. And then comes another layer, the melody. Then comes another layer, the vocals. So sometimes we illustrate the songs or the or the compositions which may have words but they're not literally just mimicking the meaning of the song or the word but the intelligence the skill of the artist is how many metaphors similes can you depict for just one word so if a vocalist is rendering something like i'm giving a very short example the color red the artist has to show the many many ways of what is color red is it the color of the lips is it the color of the lipstick is it the color of the beetle leaf is it the fine sky before sun sets is it the petal of the rose it's poetry in motion so if we look at the approaches or the tools that we have in poetry that's what the kathak artist has to depict i would very clearly say that you cannot do kathak without having an understanding of music it's the breath of the movement it's the breath of the art form of course that's the classical idiom of it or that's the traditional format and of course we can dance to silence but you need to still even if you are dancing in silence there needs to be a tune in your mind in your heart there needs to be something that causes the body to move in that way that's a lot to learn and to develop over time and it's like so many complex layers so with that in mind i was wondering could you talk about your training process to understand all these things and this history and the music and the movement obviously you started at that class you told us about but how did that kind of progress and who did you train with and where did you train when you kind of realized you wanted to take this professionally we have a tradition it's called the guru shishya parampara or the guru disciple tradition and that is literally your teacher will adopt you almost and they have you in the studio and they will train you morning and night they will spend lots of time I and mean, they become your parents and i was very fortunate that because being born and brought up in england we don't have that tradition we don't have those institutions for kathak or any indian classical dance form where you can spend 8 hours 10 hours a day with your teacher with your master similarly like in martial arts when we're training in martial arts it's the same thing it's a very much a one to one and very sacred relationship but i was very fortunate that my teacher saw that there was something in me she wanted to give her time she wanted to train her students in the most authentic manner and she was very generous with her training she had a home here in birmingham and she converted her garage into a little studio so she would invite a few of the students who showed a little bit of interest and i trained there i trained in her home sometimes she would ask us to come in the holidays not sometimes actually all holidays so any time there was some time away from school and we weren't doing anything with the family there weren't any urgent commitments she would say right come to the studio and i'm going to teach you and there were times when we also stayed over you know sometimes it was really lovely because there were like five or six of us and she would get us down and we would have our sleeping bags and she would just say right now train your hands as you're falling asleep tame your fingers because your fingers can't be like split and so she used to say make sure you're turning your wrists and you're taming your hands and if you're subconsciously learning whilst you're falling asleep your body will remember it's a bit like how you revise for exams it's a really really good technique so you know those little moments where you can't do 
in the class or you need that one-to-one time. I was very fortunate that she could offer that. And I trained for 11 years like that. It wasn't just a one hour, once a week class. It was literally giving my life as a child. I had submitted my childhood and my early teenagers committed to this dance form, learning this dance form. There's a thing that happens, it's almost like a graduation. At the end of your training, you do a debut performance and you have uh, many, many people, like 300 people come and witness that performance. And that performance sometimes is two hours long, three hours long. And it's a way to share the learning and to showcase that you are now ready to take on the professional journey of a dance artist. So at the age of 17, I was able to do that. And I was very proud to do that at the Midlands Arts Centre in Birmingham, where I first started my training with her. And I was able to go back home to her guru, her teacher uh, in Pakistan, because she wanted to prove you don't have to be in the Indian subcontinent to train well and to dance well. As long as one has a true teacher and a good teacher, you can train anywhere in the world and be as good as, if not better than the dance artists who are in the homeland of the dance form. Yeah, it was incredible, incredible experience. Some people may quite have query it, you know, how can you spend all that time as a child with one teacher and just learning one thing? But, you know, Kathak is such a vast art form, you can't do it any other way. And that's kind of a little sad thing, I think, in, in the UK that we, we're not able to give that time or we don't have those students who understand and appreciate the time that it requires. Kind of jumping off of that, because obviously it's the enormous amount of dedication, but obviously I'm sure a lot of it comes from love and passion. But on top of that, what was your kind of expectations for when you were doing it? Was it purely for the love and wanting to know about the art form? Or did you the whole time think that you wanted to do this professionally? And if so, did you have an idea of what that would look like, especially in the UK, where maybe at the time the infrastructure wasn't as set for in, for Indian classical dance um, as it is kind of progressing towards now or in other countries as well? I think very early on, I was more in love with the art form. I think as a child, as I mentioned, I struggled to understand the world around me. And dance gave me that focus dance gave me that confidence i you know used to get bullied at school and it was a really good escapism it was a way to find courage through dancing through moving through presenting an art form where you stand on the stage and also it's a solo art form so you have to be there on your own and you have an audience watching you so that idea and that kind of world that is created for five minutes and an audience then applauding you gives you a real sense of confidence and strength and there's value so I think originally that was what I was hooked onto. It became almost like an addiction. I have to dance because it makes me feel so wonderful. Um, It's an escapism. And then at the age of 12, somebody just happened to ask me, oh, so have you thought about what you want to do when you're older? And without thinking, I just said, I want to be a dance artist. And I hadn't even thought about it prior to that person asking. It was a natural response to that question. And so after I realized, yes, this is something, this is a voice from within, I really dedicated myself into practicing regularly. I didn't have space at home. We used to live above a corner shop. So my family were kind of working in this corner shop where we had a flat above it. So there was no space, but I had to make, and my parents really supported me. I mean, I think without their support, this none of this could have happened. So the, the amount 
amount of dedication, as you mentioned, is required. And I, I made time to practice. I could sometimes be in a school hall and making sure that our lunch break is my practice time. And then I realized that this was something that was empowering, not just for myself, but for others. And there was an appetite Though there were lots of challenges, and even today we have those challenges, the good thing with now is that there seems to be more of a platform for South Asian dance. At the time, it was seen as an exotic dance form. At the time, it was something seen as the other in a in a good way that, oh, it's not ballet and it's not modern dance. It's something different and it's colourful. I think the costume of it was the big attractiveness. But, you know, that wasn't enough for me. That wasn't enough for the work that I was starting to get myself involved in. You can't just be satisfied with the optics of the dance form it's much, much deeper. So that's what I set out to do. And my teacher had already started doing that. I started to dance in her company at the age of 14. So I was considered as a protege. We toured all over the world. And this is all before I'd kind of even done my A-levels. In fact, I had to study my A-levels whilst I was in Canada. And it was all a big hoo-ha about when am I going to do my exams and all of that. So that kind of opened me up into seeing that in other countries... South Asian dance was really considered as on par with ballet or contemporary dance. And there was a lot of work to do in the UK. And so, yeah, there were the first stepping stones in terms of how was I to get my work out there and what was my identity as a dance artist away from the safety of my teacher's training and her company. You mentioned to me before that when you started performing professionally as well and touring all over the world, you were also developing your choreographic practice in parallel and you're kind of right in there from the very beginning. Can you talk to me about how you started developing this choreographic practice and maybe some of the first pieces you created or your your beginnings and inspirations? I think I was always very curious about breaking some of the or stretching, I should say, some of the rules that classical dance gives us. So why follow those rules? Why can't we push the boundaries a little further? There was a friend of mine who used to go to Laban. She used to come back and say, oh, you know, we've learned these choreographic tools and these devices. And she tried some of those approaches on myself with the Kathak form. And she herself was studying and performing Bharatanatyam. We used to just kind of go into a studio and try these different techniques of choreography. And how that would challenge the art form, how that would stretch the art form. And that really made me think there's so much creative possibility here. Uh, A few other dance artists who'd graduated from the University of Surrey and Roehampton, they would come back and say that they wanted to make a solo on myself. And those experiences, they were like gems. So being part of other people's choreography, but yet using Kathak and collaborating with contemporary dance really opened up a a real new world for me. And I began to realise that I was dancing like I was taught to dance and much more was almost like a miniature version of my teacher. So what was my voice? What was my individual? Yeah, what was my individuality within that form? What did I want to say with it? My experiences as a British-born Asian child from the West Midlands, what has she got to say? What is her lived experience? That made me think about creating work that was not necessarily conceptually 
contemporary at the time when I first started out, but challenging the technique of Kathak, which helped me to create my own distinctive style of Kathak, which is what people recognize today. You established Sonia Sabri Dance Company and that has become your platform for doing this and expressing your voice as an artist. When did you exactly establish Sonia Sabri and when did you decide to take that leap to make this platform? So Sonia Sabri Company started in 2002. I yeah, was quite young, so I had no idea about starting a company and a business an organization that works within an art sector had no experience of that so it all was very much learning on the job i had some choreographic skill a lot of performance skill and it was how to make the two shine together there was a real tradition and i think it still exists very much so today is that once you start a company you become the director you become more focused on the the management side and the direction of the company and then your artistry subsides. I was adamant that I would be the artistic director, I will still perform and I will still choreograph. So a lot of companies will get in guest choreographers and they will hire dancers, but my trajectory has been that I would be in the work, I would choreograph, I would perform as well as have other musicians and dance artists be part of those productions. And we have also worked with choreographers who have never worked with Kathak, but wanted to have their movement analysis, their lens on a concept and how they would uh, develop that idea. That was very interesting. And we still continue with that idea where I'm still very much part of the performance side of things. And I am choreographing as well as managing the company with my husband who's also the co-founder of the company Sadra Sabri he comes from a musical lineage so he is a tabla artist he's a world-renowned tabla artist and his family goes back seven years of musicians so he knows everything about music and creating and composing for dance and theater so it was a real interesting collaboration there that somebody like myself who has no experience and whereas he had a lot of experience in in creating how we were to work together and how who are the artists that we want to invite who can work with us because collaboration is very tough <laughs> Definitely. We'll come on to it a bit more later about who, all the different amazing people you've collaborated with. But I just wanted to ask you as well, because you were mentioning about working with contemporary dancers, people who haven't necessarily worked with Kathak before. On your website, you say that your company aims to present North Indian Kathak in a contemporary context. Uh, could you maybe expand on what this means to you and how do you aim to create work that is relevant to both modern day audiences and blends British and culture from the Indian subcontinent? For me, there was firstly looking at the technique and how Kathak sat on me as my body and the experiences that I've had with other dance forms as well, may it be contemporary, flamenco, hip-hop style, that all has inspired how I go about the movement language. But then it became very apparent that the stories, what we have as part of our tradition, are very culturally specific for the Indian subcontinent, or at least for a certain sect of people in the Indian subcontinent. They resonate very well over there, but may not resonate in the same strength over here, even if we're talking about the South Asian communities. I don't want to attract 
only South Asian dance audiences. I want to attract Joe Blogs. I want everyone to know what Kathak is, like people do know what ballet is, or what now modern dance is, or contemporary dance is. Maybe still people don't know what contemporary dance is, but they know what ballet is, or they know what tap dance is. So that was the mission that I wanted to fulfill. So that meant, conceptually, I need to understand what does, or how can the dance form, the art form, relate to the everyday? How do I share the experiences of people living in Britain, including myself, including my peers? How can I say that? How can I share that through the dance and the music? And what are the stories that are relevant to people? Are they political? Are they social? Are they taboo? Are they personal? So I would say I'm a much more socially engaged artist because I want to hear those people's stories and that's how we are channeling our thoughts, our opinion. We're not here to resolve problems. We can certainly highlight, we can illuminate the the challenges and the obstacles that people face and feel and this is the way to do it. This is the, the language that can do it and that's also letting others know that Kathak is not bound by Indian myths and legends. That is one area. It's like a spoken language. If Once you learn the language, you can say whatever you want. It doesn't have to be about the classics or the fables. I have learned a language and that's how I go about using it to talk about the everyday. And that's what is contemporary for me. It's the concept. It's also now where we present Kathak. So traditionally, talking way, way back, it would be under a banyan tree in a courtyard or villages. That's how it would be presented. And then it came to the proscenium arch. It became a theatrical form. But now I feel it needs to expand further. I've made dance for screen. I've made sight responsive work. We are now doing outdoor productions. We are now going to care homes. We are going into women's institutes. And we are presenting Kathak and we're using the language to share their stories. So Kathak is not only made for the theatre, the stage, but Kathak can make any space at stage. It just needs people there to receive it and to be moved by it. And that is the success of our dance form, our work. Could you give some examples of some works, maybe recent ones, where you've addressed particular timely themes as well as relating to socio-political topics? We started one show, which was an all-female company, which again is very unusual because it's rare to have female musicians on stage. Apart from the, the music director, we had a cast of uh, female dance artists and musicians and we had collated several stories from women. We interviewed women and we were able to bring those stories to life through the music and the dance. Some were stories of aspiration, quite inspiring, empowering, and others were quite tragic. And we invited those women to see this production. It was called Jugani. And they related so well. So they surpassed the obstacle of not seeing this art form before, not understanding how the art form works. But because they saw their story, everything became so easily relatable. They felt that somebody had heard their hidden voice. So those were stories that I can't really go into detail with because they were quite personal. But 
that was the the start of some of the most challenging work, which led on to creating Virago, which was a solo dance, a completely solo. So I completely changed the idea of, okay, I don't want live music, but we're going to have digital artistry. And it was very complex. We had projections and we had light that was responding to my footwork live and the music. And there was motion capture and light sensitive work and movement sensitive illumination. So it was all very futuristic. But Virago was about female feticide. Now we think about female feticide as being, oh, somewhere very far away in India or Africa. But I saw a BBC report. The shocking thing was female feticide actually happens in Birmingham. It happens in Bradford. It happens in London. It happens amongst the most so-called educated, affluent families. So this was quite disturbing to me. And I wanted to do something around female feticide. So Virago was looking at that. So this is where women abort their embryos because they're female. But no one assesses the trauma. No one really asks these women, would you like to abort it? They're, they're forced to. Some women do make a choice of doing so. It was quite a heart-wrenching production for myself as an artist to interview. I think I interviewed something like 65 women on Zoom and asked them to tell me their experiences. And that was accumulated into this production, into the projection work, into the whole kind of visual artistry of the show. And it was, I mean, I would say that we'd have to do a post-show discussion each performance that we did. And we had to have a, a social worker or a mental health nurse or a psychotherapist with us in case people felt that they needed to uh, offload, they needed to have a safe space to talk about what they had seen. And then very recently, we started this new production called Mughal Miniatures, which are inspired by Persian and Indian miniature paintings. If you look at them, they're idyllic, they're very romantic. They personify the perfect woman, completely dressed up. And she, you know, every woman looks amazing in these pictures. But no one actually knows about the stories or who these characters are and how hard the lives are of some of these women. But I put it into a 21st century context. So what we have is an outdoor show where we have four characters, they're female, they're in a very tight picture frame, almost like they are in the frame of society's norm. And then they struggle and they fight to get out of this picture frame. They appear to be quite pristine and well behaved. But when they leak out of this picture frame, they are doing, I mean, one of the dancers, actually, she's b-girling, and one of them does jazz, and one of them is very acrobatic. So that kind of, I guess, the honing and the taming of the body and the gestures that sometimes classical dance is perceived as, we break those boundaries. So there are many layers to this idea of who these women are and how they should be in society and especially with the male gaze and yet when they come out we really challenge those stereotypes so there are many many productions when I can, can go on about it but what I would say is something like with the Mughal Miniatures show we we went to a, a community group of women and we asked them what is the message that they would like to give to the women of the world to the the women who are yet to be born and I mean some of them are really 
horrific. And some people said, let there not be a woman born, let there not be a girl born because of the challenges or and the orthodox beliefs that some of them are within and face and their family constructs, which really is quite oppressive. And so we took those stories, we did a lot of workshops with them. They did some craft work with us. They actually were the inspiration for the picture frame, for the design of the costumes. So they helped us to understand the the visual of it, as well as the story that we decided that we would enact through Mughal Miniatures and the dance and how these women should be, you know, what are their personalities. So we used the women, they're about, I would say, gosh, there are about 50 of them and they helped us to really construct Mughal Miniatures. It's scene one, we're doing scene two this year and it resonated so well with the audiences and these audiences aren't necessarily from those cultural backgrounds. They don't really understand some of the hardships but I think every woman understands Yes, it's damn hard work to be a woman in the modern society, regardless of what cultural background or ethnic background you come from. So the audience response has been fantastic, including the men. And it sounds really bleak and very dark, but the themes are considered that, but it's done in a very comedic way. And I think that's the fun that you can also have with physical theatre, with storytelling dance. We're looking forward to developing that. And currently we're also touring with a solo show with myself and live music, Roshni, which means light. I would say, Emily, you know, a lot of the thematic to my research work is to talk to people. I just talk to a lot of people. And if they're happy to share their personal experiences, and I take their permission to note those experiences down, and they inform my work. So Roshni is a real, it's a mirror to people's feelings about the pandemic and their struggles of the pandemic. And Roshni, meaning light or enlightenment, is kind of the hope and the positivity that we look forward to post-pandemic. They all sound like such interesting pieces and looking forward to seeing what you do with part two that you're creating this year. What I'm noticing is a through line, as you said, like talking to lots of people, but that also includes a lot of collaborators who, to just name a few that you've worked with, Richard Austin, Shabana Jaising, Nitin Sawney, John C. D. and many more people. Could you tell us a bit more about how you approach these collaborative processes with other artists and also identify the people that you want to work with? I go in with researching various artists and choreographers. And if there's a synergy where I can see with Kathak in their artistic work, then that would be the first way of approaching. Sometimes I want to go with someone who's so far away from my thinking, just for the sake of being challenged, just for the sake of being pushed. And it would be a case of inviting them to do some R&D. It might just be like even just a playtime in the studio for a day or so. And to connect with them on a mental level as well. Because if they don't have the same desires for their art form, if they're not socially engaged, if they're not interested in what the audience response is going to be like, there are certain kind of things that I need to have ticked on the list before I can go on to collaborate with them. And I have entered studios where I think I'm going to work really well with someone, but ended up not having that response or it didn't feel quite right. And sometimes collaborations don't work. And that's why it's very important to not invest in something so early on in a process, in a creative process. It's very important to do your research and development work. When I approached, for example, Shobhana Jaising, I know she hasn't worked with Kathak. I know she looks at movement in a very different way to myself. She's a very experienced movement analyst and a very experienced choreographer who has always 
worked with Bharatanatyam. So what does that do to a dancer who's never done Bharatanatyam and has Kathak in her body? We've actually worked with her twice. We've commissioned her to do two pieces of work. And it was amazing the way she uses space. Her relationship to music is very different to my relationship to music. The qualities that she could recognize within my art and in my body, which I couldn't have seen working on my own, she utilized that. So really opened up my horizon on what is choreography, the relationship to space, to music, to my own self. There was a lot of self-discovery, which I now gain and utilize when thinking about, you know, my next set of shows. Um, people like John ZD, I love hip hop. I love street dance. I love the music. And it made sense to go to the father of street dance. He welcomed me with open arms. And he said, I'm not really sure how this is going to work because I don't see how Gatak is related to hip hop. But when he came to the studio, he could see all the common denominators and he was so excited and he just said, I cannot believe that a classical tradition actually has so many commonalities that includes the way we utilize music, the beatboxing, the spins, the wow factors of Gatak, the small intricate nuances, so the, the locking and the popping, it's all there in Gatak. So it was very exciting to have him on board and, and he actually was the artistic consultant on something that I created which was called Gatak Box. And that was a very interesting production where we, again, we didn't use music or live instrumental music, everyone was doing a cappella, including including percussion, playing the floor. So asking a double artist, a very well-known double artist, well-renowned ever to play the floor, I mean, it breaks all tradition and even the etiquettes, you know, the respect as well. But it was a great show and people loved it because it was about beatboxing and we brought street dancers, we brought African contemporary dancers, contemporary dancers and Kathak. And that was about how we don't want to be placed in a box, in a tick box, which I think was a reaction to the amount of forms I had to fill in to try and identify who I am, just so I could get some funding or just so I could get a passport renewed. We're tick boxing all the time. So Kathak Box was a real statement towards that, that we are so versatile, we are so nuanced as people, you cannot put them into one box. That was an incredible show as well. So looking forward to working with choreographers, it's it's kind of keeping in, in touch with what they're up to or what are their choices around their work. And is there a parallel or is there a meeting point with my own work? Just picking up on the creation of Kathak Box, I know that you developed this style which you call Urban Kathak. Did that come out of the creation of this piece or was that something you'd worked on prior to it? It certainly accelerated it. Well, prior to that, I was already working on it and I was commissioned by the place called the Place Prize where I started to really hone in on Urban Kathak and developing that form. So basically, Urban Kathak is looking at the mannerisms of young people in urban spaces. It's also looking at urban music. It's also producers, how sound designers create urban tracks, as well as what are the urban dance styles around. Almost finding the parallel in Kathak and then drawing out that parallel in Kathak even more so. I am stretching the rules and I should say I am also creating my own rules, knowing what is acceptable in Kathak. So if I was to do something completely random, yes, would it be seen as Kathak? Probably not. So it's how far 
Can I stretch those creative possibilities whilst retaining the form? I think the biggest compliment is when I perform Kathak and people who are so used to seeing Kathak who are kind of hardcore traditionalists or are critiquing Kathak, including those in India, they say, yes, this is Kathak for sure. But it's not like the Kathak we're used to. This is something else. This is something new. But there's no way in saying that there is not the Kathak form. And I think that's the biggest compliment one can have is that if they can recognize it, but yet they don't see the normal choreography or the traditional choreography, or I don't know how to actually even define it. But if they can see that there's new vocabulary there, I think that's a really great thing to be complimented with. I was going to ask, actually, because you talk a lot about breaking the rules, whether there are people within the Katak and classical Indian dance communities that sometimes are less fond of breaking the rules. Is there more of a traditionalist movement that's not so keen on this blending? Absolutely. There are always going to be people who query it or question it. I mean, the first show that we did, which launched Sonia Sabri Company, was Drishti. That was the first time we used Kathak with digital artistry. And it was artistry of the time. It was really kind of hip. It was advanced technology. We were the first South Asian dance company who had done it. I had seen Wayne McGregor do it for his shows. I was completely won over and I thought, this is what we want for Kathak. We want to be able to have this dialogue with digital artistry and the live music. And the amount of people who came back and said, no, this is not how classical dance should be presented. And this is not the way that the vocabulary should be interacting with technology. And the choreography is so random. It's not the traditional way of choreography. And I just thought, that's exactly what I want. I don't want you to see the normal. I don't want you to see the expected. And then what was interesting, like 10 years down the line, then other people are doing the same thing with technology and classical dance. Another thing that we did do very early on was, so I don't know if you've seen Kathak in a traditional format, the, the musicians are always placed on the right side of the stage and they stay there. They just play and you dance. For a production we called Red, I said the musicians are actually going to be part of the choreography. Yes, I know that they're not trained dancers, but they are going to be part of the interaction. They will play music from different parts of the space and they will be characters of the production. Again, that was a massive, massive uproar in, in the traditional dance industry. How can you put musicians on the center stage, interacting with the dancers side by side? And they're trying to dance and they're not even dancers. I mean, they weren't dancing. They were just bobbing to the groove of the music they were creating. That was extraordinary to watch. I worked with Rose English, a fantastic director, and then further on with Jatinder Verma, who was the director of the time uh, of Thara Arts and they were great because the dramaturgery of all of that was needed as an outside eye. I was in the show so I couldn't actually keep stepping out. So anyway, they contributed massively and it was a great show. Everyone who was not a traditionalist loved it. And then I find again only recently another Kathak company does the same thing. It's now acceptable. So I do wonder whether sometimes we have presented ideas which are a little ahead of its time. People at the time were not ready to accept these stretched boundaries and these creative possibilities. And I feel quite proud that we have set the parameters and I hope that we can continue to do that because it's very important for the legacy of Kathak.
Talking of legacy, that actually brings very nicely onto my next question. I wanted to talk about teaching, which is also an important strand of your practice. Can you tell us a bit about your teaching practice and some of the teaching or education programs you run at the moment with your company, especially with in mind that we've talked about your training with your teacher and how important of a time that was and how you're paying it forward now? At the moment, we are running regular classes. We have recreational classes for anyone who's just using dance as a hobby and obviously music as well. We're running tabla classes. There is an option to do vocational training and there are one or two students who want to take Kathak very seriously and want want to become dance artists and some of them are already working as dance artists. It's managing the uh, pressures of life, the the pressures and the commitments that people have as living in the 21st century. People want to have a nightlife, they want to <laughs> they also want to train, but they also need to do a job and they also need to study. So all those factors are quite challenging. I'm trying to make time for them. We've developed a couple of relationships with some local dance studios so that we can have an artist part or a way to because again studio costs are very high hiring them are you know it's almost like you have to save up to pay on the hourly rate so I've managed to develop those relationships and get the students in whenever they can and give my time to them wherever is possible the, the tradition is that once you've trained only then will you get work in the company I've started to bring in apprentice dancers so those who are not fully relished in the form they can do something in a production you know they can be part of a choreographic piece to the best of their level and i think that has helped in getting the commitment of the students that they can see that there is a pathway for them and also it gives them an incentive to practice that's also a big challenge is why would why do you want to practice especially when you don't have that culture all all around you like you probably would have in the indian subcontinent dance and music is everywhere here it's not the same thing so the incentive of practicing which is needed to develop as an artist is provided through the options and the opportunity that we are giving as Sonisabi company. Teaching is also a great way of which I know is one of your company's aims to raise the profile of Kathak and South Asian dance in the UK and and passing that on and creating as you said a pathway for new generations of dancers. With this in mind, we you talked a little bit about how the scene or the profile was in the UK when you started the company. Could you maybe explain how you've seen that change and develop? As I mentioned earlier, I think it was like the cherry of a cake. That's how Indian dance was seen and not really understood and appreciated that it has the same value and is on par with traditions like ballet. Now we're in a system with the arts council with kind of broadcasting stations like BBC introducing south asian dance as part of the BBC young dancer and there are initiatives like the cat program so national dance agencies dance houses including south asian dance as part of their training repertoire you know talent developing spotlighting talent there are organizations like the national youth company or one dance uk offering platforms for young people to share their art form to share their achievement in in their practice it is much much different to when i was training and the opportunities are endless now however 
there is still a lot more to do because we still find that performing in venues, mainstream venues, is still difficult. Programming is very limited for South Asian dance and it's quite competitive. There's a saturation of contemporary dancers and contemporary dance companies. There isn't an equivalent to that for South Asian dance and so the, the programming is very limited. Funding, I think, is better, but again, really have to prove the point why one has to be funded for a South Asian dance form. And I think what we would benefit is collaboration with other art forms, with organisations, with leading institutes, and to develop that appreciation with those people, with those organisations. And some of that has happened with some kind of ballet organisations working with Gatak organisations. But it needs to happen on a regular basis to develop those audiences. Key thing, I would say, is that Gatak dance or South Asian dance needs to be embedded into the education system. How did Martha Graham get her contemporary dance out there? It was because she was going into schools. As soon as a child understands there is a language, there is a physical language, that's when we should be introducing dance. That's when we should be introducing South Asian dance. We need to make dance representative of the communities. Britain is so diverse but there are probably 80%, if not 90% of children who don't feel that they're represented in society. And I must bring this point in. We created a family show called Same Same But Different. And it was all about children feeling like the other. Because in a workshop that I was leading, a seven-year-old boy said to me, I don't like going to the theatre because I don't see people like myself on stage. And that was such a profound observation and development of thought from a seven-year-old boy, Asian child. And I just thought we have to make a show on this because how many children are feeling like they are not accepted, they are not appreciated. And this was a great show. Again, it was so popular. We even toured during COVID restrictions. It was most challenging, but most rewarding. And the teachers and the families, the parents, they came back to us and said, we are so glad, so invigorated to see that you are talking about something, not having to use spoken language. You are talking about the differences and the challenges that a child or a parent has. And we are now able to have those discussions after seeing this show. What is it to be different? And it's okay to be different because every child, every person in this world has to be different so that the world is an interesting place. To set those ideologies within school settings and within family audiences, I think was a great achievement for us. And we hope to develop that further. So yes, I think the education system really needs to change. I mean, we know it's in a dire strait at the moment. Even music is being depleted from, from the syllabus. So we have to make some real changes in order for South Asian dance to be seen at the same level as ballet, contemporary and other art forms. You were talking a lot about ambitions for Katak as an art form. You could maybe share with us any specific ambitions you have for the future personally for Sonia Sabri Company or people you'd like to work with, things that you would like to explore or achieve. The ambitions are beyond the sky. But yes, I think I would love people know who Sonia Sabri Company is. And I think the profile is increasing every year. And we certainly saw that happen globally during the pandemic because we went digital. So we had a great influx of students who wanted to try train with us online. Uh, choreography commissions came our way. We collaborated online with other Kathak artists and renowned Kathak artists around the world. So I just would like to have the name Sonia Sabri Company on everyone's lips. Know what Kathak is. 
I'd like to be able to give lots of vocational opportunities to the young dance artists who are training very hard, who are making very important decisions, life decisions, whether they should become an artist or whether they should get a proper job. If I could be in a position where I could create lots of different works for those artists, for those young artists. Ideally, you know, I'd love to have different institutions running up and down the country, if not right across the world. Because as I mentioned, my Kathak is quite distinctive. It's a very personal form or technique because I've worked very hard in developing it. I would love people to recognize it, to, to dance it. It's reaffirmed every time I meet a Kathak artist who may have traveled from India and trained in India to work with me, I can see the Kathak is very different. And the dynamic range, the quality, the awareness of the body in the space is very different to how I've developed it. So that would be incredible that somebody would say, yes, have you heard Sonia Sabri Companies or Sonia Sabri Company's form or the Sabri technique? You know, that would be wonderful. I think Martha Graham is someone I kind of use as a reference point. So that would be wonderful to have a Sabri technique. <laughs> I'm coming to the last question. It's been so amazing to talk to you. As this is the Terpsichore podcast, we always ask the same final question, which is if you could speak to or meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history, who would it be and why? And what would you like to ask them? Yes, I was thinking about this. There are so many people, but I think I would like to speak to uh, Rukmani Devi, who was an Indian dance choreographer and dancer in the early 1900s. She was an actor activist. She was a humanitarian. And she was the one who created Bharatanatyam in the form that we see today, especially the Kalakshetra school of thought and technique. From what I've read about her, to bring an art form when the British colonial reign had given such a bad name to an art form, which to the people of South India was sacred how she fought that, how she fought the male gaze. And it is coming down to the male gaze. If you read some of the diaries of the, the British Raj and the soldiers and the, the lords and how they called them the Nautch girls, basically dancing girls. They had really brought down the reputation of the dance forms. And she had fought to bring back the respect and the value and brought this art form into the main public domain. And at a very young age, I think she was quite feisty. She sounds like a very feisty woman. And I want to kind of ask her, how difficult was it? What did it take? in order for you to do that. She was so well respected that she was offered to become the president of India in 1980s, I think, 1970s even. You know, she got her appreciation. She got the respect in her lifetime, which is quite unusual. But obviously she's done such fantastic work that the Bharatanatyam that we see mostly today is because of her. Given the challenges that I sometimes face and like we've spoken about earlier, you know, when you're trying to do something new and then people are very ready to critique and give you their opinion and how you should do things and how you shouldn't be doing things. I would love 
to ask her if I sat with her at dinner, you know, what would be the pearls of wisdom that you would share? And anyone who doesn't know about Rukmini Devi, I would urge them to read some things around how she developed dance in India. She sounds like an incredible woman. And I use her as an inspiration anyway, even though I've never met her. She's kind of like this, you know, ethereal inspiration who's there at the back of my head, who I sometimes think, you know, if she was alive, what would she do? It sounds amazing. And also you saying about her fighting for the value of dance in India or refinding the respect actually feels quite relevant today for all dance styles in general, I think, especially after the pandemic. I mean, I'm always using this as a reference, but the horrific things put out by the, the UK government about dancers and what, what jobs are necessary and what aren't, what you were saying about, about her work feels topical and relevant today as well. Yes, yes. I mean, complete revivalist she was. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. It's been so amazing to talk to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing Sonia Sabri. If you would like to find out more about Sonia's work, you can follow her on Instagram at Sonia Sabri Co. or check out her website at www.ssco.org.uk. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow the Terpsichore podcast on Instagram at Terpsichore underscore podcast or Twitter at Terpsichore underscore pod. Thank you so much again for listening to the Terpsichore podcast with me, Emily May.